Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. This episode features Lewis Goodall from the news agents, formerly of Newsnight, Sky News, published author, all-round mega-talent, and only 34 years old. We talk about his life, his upbringing, the effect it had on him, uh, his university experience, his politics. He's just such a fantastic person to talk to. Real gift of chat. And this is a real treat. Um, now, this is the first episode I put out for a while. It's the first one since the Kate Forbes episode in August. And a few people have got in touch asking why. Obviously, the show is still alive, which is great. Um, but I've had a bit of a health issue. So if you came to see me at the Edinburgh Festival, you know I was suffering with terrible sciatica in August. Um, and I um, obviously went to the doctors and got it sorted. I got some amazing painkillers, which made those Edinburgh shows even more wonderful than they usually are. But I had an MRI... Um, and I've got a tumour on the spine, um, so I'm going to have to have it removed. So I'm having surgery very soon, and um, it will be removed, and then I think the recovery may take a bit. So I'm recording episodes at the moment before I go into hospital um, so that there's still stuff on the feed, but I may repeat some old episodes and, and curate a little series of some of my favourite moments and things like that so that you've got something to listen to. And I hate not doing the show. It's been... a well, the worst things about the last few weeks has been not being able to interview people. And obviously, it just means that the live shows, the ones with Jason Williamson from the Sleaford Mods with, with Dan Jarvis, and then the Harriet Harman and Rory Stewart shows will all be rescheduled. Um, but that'll probably be in a few months' time. And uh, and I'll just keep you updated on, on what's going on um, a little bit. Not not in too much detail, obviously. But um, I obviously just need to get that sorted. So um, hopefully... Uh, surgery will solve that problem, I'll recover, and then I'll be back doing live shows, including my tour next year and everything else. Um, but for the time being, I'll just record a few of these remote ones, um, and I'll be back. Um, so this was recorded with Lewis Goodall um, at, on uh, Sunday, just at the start of the Labour Party conference. And Lewis's book, which you have to read, and I will put a, a link to it, um, Left for Dead, the, the Death and Strange Rebirth uh, of the Labour Party, just such a timely piece. And... It was just great, basically, about the Labour Party dying. And then and then we talk about this in, in the interview, about the Corbyn effect. And you can just sense with Lewis that whether or not that's the, the Labour that he identifies with, there was something fascinating about it. And and its result of the 2017 election and, and what that meant about where the country was and things like that. So this is a great discussion about um, all sorts of things, including how some political broadcasters don't seem to understand politics. <laughs> and then obviously we don't name names, but it's just interesting. The whole thing is great. He's a phenomenal uh, person to spend time with. So I will now shut up. 
um, and leave you in, in the wonderful hands of uh, such a gifted broadcaster, Lewis Goodall. Lewis, I've finally got round to this. I've wanted to have you on the podcast for years for a number of reasons, not just your wonderful work on Sky News and Newsnight, but your phenomenal book, Left for Dead, The Death and Strange Rebirth of the Labour Party. Um, you have a I'm fascinating so I think you might, you are its, its biggest proponent. I think you're a bigger proponent for it than me. I sort of, you mention it every time. We, uh, it's almost like a vintage item now. That's the problem when you write about contemporary politics. It's just such a mistake. I'm never doing that again. It's no, it was a great book. It yeah. was perfect. Oh, it was a fantastic book. But what I, one thing, and I remember thinking this, reading it, and it was a bit like a James, I don't know if you ever saw the James Graham play, Labour of Love. You know what? I didn't. That was the one I didn't see. It was really annoying. I really wanted to see that one. I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen Dear England either, actually. But um, yeah, but I, I read about his Labour one. It sounded great. Well, it kind of, it, it, it reminded me of your book because I read your book, obviously with my politics in mind and thought, oh, I think Lewis is on the same page as me. And, and I got that from James Graham's play. But then I thought, actually, if I was to the left of me, if I was a Corbynista, could I have read your book and conceivably felt there was something in it for me? And, and I, 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 I then thought, where do you stand? You know, where were you as a labour activist? Were you a were you a were you a, a socialist? Were you ever a, a communist, or were you a Blairite, or are you somewhere in between those stools? When I was when I was a kid, I mean, to be honest, I was probably a bit like I mean, you're a bit older than me, but I was probably a bit like you from what I understand about your politics, Matt. Which is that I was just like I was the biggest Blair fanboy, right? I mean, and it was like you got to remember, like this was like this was like 2000. It wasn't this wasn't like in the mid 90s when it was cool. This was like. 2003 and 2004 right this was like sort of proper dog days sort of post Iraq and I was going along and it makes me laugh because you know like the guidos of this world and all that lot you know make such a big deal of this about being a labor activist and this big you know that some, sometimes I list, read some of this stuff and it's like I was sort of like in the shadow cabinet or something my sort of grand ascension within the labor party was like youth officer of Birmingham Northfield CLP and I have to say that in 2003-04, that was not a particularly competitive position, right? It was not. A, it was like me, the local MP, and like this old guy called Stan who used to turn up to the CLP meetings sort of week after week. But I was just like, I don't know, I was I was just sort of so bitten so early by the kind of love of politics. And my family were always, you know, Labour, although in a very kind of small P political way, like they would never turn to meetings or anything. They were just those classic congenital kind of Labour voters because they're for us and the Tories aren't kind of thing. And I think I was just sort of this big Blair. I just I was just sort of captivated by him. My mom was captivated by him as well. And she still is. She used to fancy him terribly. She used to always just say, oh, he's so he's so gorgeous, isn't he? He's so gorgeous. <laughs> he's got a great body, hasn't he? My mom will still say that to this day. <laughs> so he has, though. He's in good shape. <laughs> he's in good shape. He's in good shape. And now my wife works for him. So, you know, somehow he's sort of he's taking over your life. Orbiting my life. I know, I know. But I hope she doesn't feel the same way as my mother did. But anyway, um, I was just sort of very, very sort of, I just always just felt sort of deeply labour as a kid, right? And then I went to university and I think I sort of slightly soured on him and and all this sort of thing. I mean, and I went into journalism. I think the truth is, and, and then later, um, when Corbyn came along, sort of to answer your question, I, I was, you know, like you, I think many people who were sort of, you know, instinctively on the sort of left, centre-left, I very felt very sceptical of him, not because of him, slight, partly because of him personally as, as a character, because I'd sort of met him a few times, but also because I just sort of felt, I remember when I was a producer at Newsnight having a, 
kind of quite a big argument, kind of quite improper, really, with James Schneider, who was then just still an outrider of his. And I kind of like had a go at him. And this is when Corbyn was still running. I, I kind of basically accused him of saying, you don't understand working class people and you are going to destroy this, you know, this thing. And all because you just want to feel better about yourself. And it's totally improper, really, because I was a producer and I shouldn't have been saying things like that. And he was quite good about it. We had a quite a spirited argument. And I felt like that for a long time. And then I think in 2017, in the general election, when that happened, and I, you might disagree with this, and, and I know others do as well, I have to say something in me just suddenly thought, wow, this is really interesting. And I think the reason why the the sort of, and this is when I was at Newsnight and at Sky, I think the reason why a lot of the kind of the Corbynista part of the party and the people around him, including Schneider, always kind of like didn't mind me and sort of didn't mind giving interviews to me and things like that is because I think they sort of knew that I wasn't kind of sort of one of them as such, but that I was sort of interested in what they were creating and what they were doing. And and I was very interested in this movement. Suddenly, and I, I do think that I'm amazed at, at this sometimes, and this, it speaks to the factionalism of the Labour Party and of British politics overall. They do have a point when they say and that in 2017, 40% of this country voted for Jeremy Corbyn, right? Like, and I would never have thought that was possible. I just never would have thought that was possible. And I know people can talk about Theresa May and that campaign and whatever. But it, I think, if anything, the last few years has taught me, and this is one of the reasons I like being a political journalist, is that the kind of smorgasbord of options, the parameters of options within British politics is so much wider than many of the kind of grey beards, the people who talk about iron laws of politics would tell us. Because it is both possible, because both these things are true, that Jeremy Corbyn got 40% of the vote in 2017 and Boris Johnson got 44% in 2019. And so there are no iron laws. And I was very intrigued by what sort of he was creating and the movement they were creating. So there's a long way, of, a very long way of saying basically that I, um, I, was, I was sort of kind of Corbyn agnostic or ambivalent, if, if you like. So then how, because it is tricky for people who then go into journalism, obviously Nick Robinson has, has sort of faced this as well. Having been a Labour activist and then you find yourself at Sky and the BBC, was that ever an issue for you? As it, or more to the point, was that ever an issue for your bosses? It's never been an issue for my bosses. Well, some of the BBC bosses, uh, not, not really, I thought you have to divide it, right? I mean, I don't, there has never been an issue from any boss or for me personally in terms of my work and how I approach journalism and 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 so on and i think actually if anyone looked at any of the record they would sort of see that i mean um in all sorts of ways and i could point to all sorts of things um there's never ever been any kind of impartiality complaint or anything that was ever upheld no one was ever able to point to something the issue always has come because there are certain people with an agenda who wanted to kind of create noise right and there's always particularly at the bbc less so at sky although it happened at sky as well um but at the BBC, there's always like there's always someone on the naughty step. There's always someone that is pointed to as like the person who the Mail or the Express or Guido, whoever it is, are going to point at and say, this is the guy who represents everything that's wrong with the BBC. And that person moves. There's always someone. And for a while, it was it was me. Um, and it was never that they could point to anything in particular, because as I say, nothing was upheld, but they would just create a kind of noise and aura and some bosses don't care about that the bbc is very sensitive to that because they're all they see is like headline about someone and they don't really care what the content is they just care that the headline is there so it's never an issue for me and and you know my my view about this has always been this like i think that political i mean look i, I will make no um i've never made any secret of that i am political i'm a political person like i thought about politics like every day 
since you know, I was like 10 or 11 or something like, you know, I, I don't quite know what I would be if, if politics were just sort of removed from my life. I just say it would just be this empty, empty mass. Right. Um, but I think that makes for stronger political journalists, not weaker ones. And I was I was actually talking to a cabinet minister at the Tory party conference last week and who I hadn't seen quite a while. And he just said to me, oh, how are you doing? How are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, I'm loving your work on the podcast. I said, oh, that's very nice. And uh, he said, yeah, I always meant to say to you, I always felt like during the sort of height of the Boris years that you got a bit of a raw deal. Uh, and I said, I said, oh, really? Why would you say that? I said, well, I mean, like, it, it's always clear that you're political. But what I've always felt is that we know you're political and you're straight and, and you're, that sort of helps you understand us. And I, that's what I've always sort of felt. I've always felt that if you are a political person yourself, it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right, uh, or you're looking at someone, you can kind of understand how politicians think, as opposed to sometimes when you get, well, I would say non-political political journalists, which I think is a weird thing. And they often just say things like, end up saying quite bland things and almost be like, oh, well, God, they're all a bit weird politicians, aren't they? It's like, no, no, that's not our job. Our job is to understand them and then explain to the public. And so I think that being political helps you. And I would say in that sense, yeah, I would say, kind of obvious, I suppose, in my background, that I would go on the centre-left in the same way that I think, and I wouldn't seek to compare myself to him in, in other ways, but, you know, someone like Andrew Neil, for example, who's clearly on the centre-right, no one would, I think, doubt that, but he's clearly, he's excellent at what he does and always has been. So I think that's, uh, there's a long history of that, and I've always been comfortable with it, but there are some people who, you know, try and use it. And why for you then, if you, I mean, obviously you can, you're, you're only 34, you've got a long life ahead, there's a, a whole load of other options open to you, but why for now do you think you've majored on political journalism reporting rather than seeking elected office or a strategy role with with the Labour Party? Um, I, I, well, I mean, I've all, you know what, like, uh, it's, it sounds really like banal and trite, but I, I just, I love the news. <laughs> Someone said to me in journalism once, right, like, if you don't love the news, then you might as well just, just, just go away, which is absolutely true. I love, I mean, and it almost, and, and sometimes it drives my wife mad and it drives me mad in some way. Almost like it doesn't matter what the news story is. I kind of want to go, like right now, I would love to go to Israel. I would just love to go. I just absolutely love to go just because like that's where it's at. I'm a bit annoyed. I'm at the Labour Party conference where the sort of story isn't at really, even though this is kind of like in some ways kind of my absolute milieu, like in lots of ways. And, you know, um, but it doesn't really matter. So I, there's something about, and particularly in broadcast news, I don't think I could have worked for papers sort of permanently, but particularly in broadcast news, there's something about the kind of synthesis of like the sort of the sort of the momentum of the story where it is and being able to see it and always being able to be there, plus the kind of synthesis with that and the sort of magic of broadcasting itself, which I love, particularly TV, but all, all of it is just kind of very it's kind of electric to me. Like I love it. I just absolutely love it. So, uh, you know, I mean, who knows what the future would hold, but I can't imagine. I just I just sort of love it too much. And I love that. I love other journalists. I love the craft of it. And maybe it's because I've always done it, but I've never, ever once been bored of it. Um, so uh, I think that and particularly, you know, there's another thing, Matt, which I thought about a lot. And I don't actually think it's a good thing. But I, I think one of the things that struck me most about the last sort of five years or so is like and this was always there a bit. But the synthesis between news and me between, sorry, between politics and media is now so great. And again, I'm not, I don't necessarily think it's a good thing, but it's almost like it is so hard to know now where politics ends and the media begins. And so often the media itself, too much so, is the story and is where the, the arena, where basically the whole of the kind of, the 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 kind of the actual craft of politics and the kind of the, the narrative and flow of politics goes, that I think that in a way you never quite feel, and again, I say it's not necessarily a good thing, but you never, you kind of feel both, 
in politics and not in politics in the weird sort of way because the fusion is now so great. Don't think it's a good thing, but it is. It is what it is. But that's it, isn't it? I mean, you 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 get involved in politics because you have a view of the way the world should be, often motivated by a sense that things are wrong and that, and that things need to change. And along the way, there are elements of the discourse and and the arena that that you find exciting and entertaining. The ability to report on it, to go to places where the story is, to be the person that explains it to people, but also. You kind of got into politics because you wanted to change things, and isn't there, a, 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 in a way, a higher calling is not the right way to put it, but not just to report on the story, but to actually be the person shaping it because you are changing the world yourself and, and not being the person uh, talking yeah. about the person changing it. There is, there's the great Teddy Roosevelt quote, which I love, where he talks about the arena, and he talks about the idea that politics is the arena and that, you know, you can, the 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 people can sort of criticize and be on the sidelines as much as they like, but they will never know. Even on the sort of worst day, I'm paraphrasing it massively, but even on the worst day, they will never quite know the kind of thrill of the arena itself. And I completely get that. And I and yeah, of course, I think anyone again who's interested in political journalism, and I'm sure this would be true of like someone like Nick Robinson or or whoever or Andrew Neil. It's sort of uh, it, it it there is obviously a sort of lure of it, and there's always that question of. You, you, you can talk to as many people as you like and you think you can have an understanding, but you never truly know what it's like to be in the room, right? You never truly know the dynamics of it. Journalists are always, however insidery they are, and I wouldn't say I was a particularly insidery one, but however insidery they are, they're always on the outside. So, yeah, of course there is that. But I think that there is, um, there, the, the thing is, is that ultimately I, I wanted to go into journalism partly because I think, as you say, there is, if you're political, then you have a quite strong sense of what is right and wrong and how the world could be better. And I think in my career, as well as being able to kind of be where the story is, which I do find sort of personally thrilling, there have been moments that I can point to, whether it's the kind of like stuff around the exams crisis or sort of leasehold stuff or, you know, when I was at Sky and there was and, and stories there where I can sort of look back and say, I think I made a bit of a difference to that without sounding too grand about it. Because, partly because the fusion between politics and the media is now so sort of great. And, you know, one of the things, in some ways, social media has probably debilitated me in some ways in terms of my career. Um, But in other ways, it allows you to be able, a, a great joy, which is to be able to sort of point at something and say, we should all be looking at that. We should all be looking at that. And the power to do that and to sort of shape the conversation a bit is if you have a bit of a profile is actually quite great. Um, so it's, 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 uh, you know, so, so, so it has, it has its compensations as well as being a kind of thrilling career. I think the other thing for me in politics, if I ever did think about it is I'm a bit of a, like, um, I'm not sure how much of a, partly because being a journalist, I'm not sure I'm that much of a team player, you know, in politics, uh-huh. you have to be a real team player. You know, you, you're not just yourself. Like I always get annoyed when people say things like, Oh, why doesn't XMP just, um, uh, say what they think. Uh, it's like, no, like when you're a Labour MP or you're a Conservative MP or m- even more so if you're a minister, you're not there because of what you think, right? You- you're there because you're part of the whole. And so you- being party discipline is really, really important. I'm so down on like the general kind of like um, tendency within politics and media to sort of be down on parties. I think it's so sort of hollow and two-dimensional. Um, but that and that's really important. I'm not sure I if I could do that. I don't know. I don't know because partly because I've got so used to being my own person. Do you know what I mean? And like it doesn't really matter. I can sort of say what I like and it doesn't really matter. Um, although at the BBC you can't really do that as much. But you know, um being a journalist, you're very much yourself. Um, it's one of the reasons journalists make terrible managers, is because you're sort of yourself, right? Um, and I don't know if I could adopt adapt to being part of the whole. I don't know. 
You mentioned earlier about some political journalists saying things that are very bland. And I just wonder, sometimes I listen to people, I think, not only do I think you don't actually understand what makes politicians tick, I actually don't think you understand the public either. I don't think you'll look... I mean, I think of the conversation around Keir Starmer at the moment, and I think so much of the commentary around him is basically nonsense. And I think you're not understanding why people are going to vote at the next election. And, and so much of the noise that some people get obsessed with it's just almost like for their own entertainment. I actually don't think they understand what motivates people to vote at all. I mean, I don't know. It sounds like that's a, a frustration that you share at times. Um, I just, I find like uh, just so much of the kind of Westminster conversation just so unreal. Like, and I, I, I and like an example of that. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago when Sunak was, um, was doing, uh, was talking about, uh, deferring the point at which the ban on petrol and diesel cars would come in right until 2035 and i could not believe and again this is one of the great joys of being able to kind of speak for yourself a bit i just couldn't i I couldn't believe that we basically went 24 hours and almost no one with only a couple of exceptions you know the whole it went through the whole westminster narrative machine and it went through the papers and and it's much easier for tory pm to determine this stuff dictate this stuff because they've got the papers on their side but, you know, and literally the way it was being covered, even by you know some in broadcast, you know, you'd think that this was as soon as was sort of presenting it, this sort of great coup for sort of hard strap press families across the country. I'm like, excuse me. I mean, how many poor people or even middle off people or even quite rich people do you know buy a new car? Almost no one. Like, like literally almost no one. And, and and like you wouldn't have known it from virtually any of the coverage. And yet Sunak was able to basically present it as a kind of great coup de grace for a sort of motorist across the country everywhere and that's just a small example of just how untethered and unmoored from reality so much of the sw1 conversation is some of that is purely for political reasons because they want it to be unmoored because they're presenting a certain way of looking at it and the sort of papers are sort of complicit in that um some of it is just because genuinely these people and this is what always makes me laugh and does my head in slightly like, you know, these people and um, who present themselves as some great tribune of like how ordinary people think, honestly, they wouldn't know an ordinary person if they came and slapped them in the face. I mean, they really wouldn't, let alone how they live. And too much of SW1 is like that. Do you think that's partly the success of the news agents then is, is, is actually that there is a huge market for the sort of thing that you three are doing, that, that people want um, political coverage that they can, they can identify with more, that it's resonating with people more than perhaps some of the the other places yeah it's interesting i mean look uh i I think you know obviously we've been surprised by the extent to which it's done it's done so well um like if you take the sort of 24-hour download periods now it's basically kind of getting the same sort of numbers that like a tv you know sort of news night would get or, or whatever which in the space of a year is sort of astonished us um and it's astonished me i mean to be honest i thought it would be if I'm totally honest, I thought I wouldn't think it would be a side project, but I thought it would be something that wouldn't take up that much of my time. I thought, honestly, like podcasting, how hard can that be? Right. You just go in and just talk for 40 minutes and whatever. And of course, as a podcast doyen yourself, you know, there's so much more to it than that. But I, I sort of naively thought that. And it, actually, it turns out it's, it's quite a bit more than that because it's basically a kind of a whole brand. Um, but I think that I think that there is a market for um, people for a, t- a news which is not p- polemic. It's not just shouting off about what you think the whole time, but nor is it as completely constrained by the kind of norms and rules of traditional broadcasting, which, although I still basically support in lots of ways, I do think sometimes can 
stultify the way that kind of just just the way it sounds like one of the things that it's like it's same in politics right now for good or ill all people want is authenticity they want the sense audiences and voters are very sophisticated now right they they kind of see through a lot of the artifice of 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 established kind of um norms like kind of or, or institutions like tv or politics and they just want that sense of sort of real realness reality and um i think that kind of being able to just sometimes sort of step away from that a little bit and and be quite direct about when you're reporting something kind of resonates with people um and that's and and i think that's part of it and how do you feel about shows like news night now well i'm i'm a huge advocate for it and i'm very much against um i mean who knows maybe by the time people are listening to this there will have been a decision on it but i'm very very much against obviously the bbc any suggestion that they cut it or make it into a kind of husk um I think, you know, the truth is about Newsnight, really, is that they've deprived it of resources for a very long time. And also they took the legs away under it, to be honest. I mean, like when I was there and particularly after the kind of Emily famous, well, they call it a monologue, but it wasn't. It was just a cue into Dominic Cummings, into a piece of mine, actually, um, about him and Barnard Castle. Uh, they basically made it very clear after that that a, a script that was being uh, that was going to go out on Newsnight was basically going to be treated the same way as a script for the 10 o'clock news. Now that was just never going to, in terms of kind of, in terms of the language and potential of, of around complaints. And that was just never going to work because the whole point of Newsnight is you've already got the 10 o'clock news. You don't just need a slightly flabbier 10 o'clock news. You don't need just a kind of slightly stodgier 10 o'clock news. It's got to have, it's a news and current affairs show. So it can lean into the current affairs element of the remit. It can uh, have a little bit more personality, a bit more punch, have a bit more jeopardy, be a bit more unexpected. And they basically, and they still do that because I've got amazing sort of colleagues there, ex-colleagues there, and they still try and do that. But it's become a lot harder for them to do that. It was harder when I was there as well. And if in that case, it just slightly takes the legs from under it, but it's still a great program. And it's absolutely, and if you, if you didn't have Newsnight, the truth is it would be necessary in that Voltairean way to, to invent it because you need a place where you have quality filmmaking and you have interviews that are sort of agenda setting and at the end of the day. So in some form, I guarantee they can take it away and they'll just recreate it in some way. So when you leave, you, Emily and John, how did that work? Did, were you approached as a trio from the outset or, or was one person approached and then they spoke to the other person or the other person? No, they. I mean, they had announced, John and Emily had, um, Emily had gone on, on holiday for like three months at the start of 2022 she was working on her um, her screenplay for her for her Prince Andrew drama. So she was gone. She was she was gone for three months. And um, then in the middle of that, in February, she announced totally to all of our surprise that she was leaving to do the show. I was like, what the hell? Was she going to do a podcast? Like a daily pop? What? Why? You know, <laughs> why, why is she doing that? She's leaving Newsnight to go and do some daily podcast at Global. We were like, I was, I, you know, I was completely, completely confused by it. Um, and then I decided to go and do, do it with them. Uh, but a few months later, they sort of approached me and said that they would need, wanted to have a third person on it. Um, and would I think about it? And I sort of thought about it. We had a long conversation and then they announced that I was going to do it as well. So it was slightly, I sort of came afterwards. Um, but I think, you know, Emily had, had had been thinking about her future. And I think John had as well, because although John, I think, you know, could well have ended up political editor if he hadn't done this, but he decided he wanted to do this. So it was a sort of gradual thing. And then we started last September. I can't believe you're only 34. Do you think, Big holy man. shit, I've achieved so much, so, it, it, yeah. at such an age? 
no, no, I don't think I've achieved very much at all. Like I, to be honest, like um, published uh, author. Yeah, well, I don't podcaster, know. broadcaster. I'm, I'm, you know, Matt. You know what? I was working class lad. I don't like this sort of compliments. You know, you know how it is. I just, <laughs> just throw an insult at me, will you? Honestly, like um, you know, it's hard. You, you, you're a good-looking fella. No, you're not a waste <laughs> of space. You're articulate. You're good-looking. You're uh... bright. Oh God, I need my dad here to tell me that I'm a, I'm a plank or something. This is my, uh, <laughs> so what? Because you, you, I mean, you mentioned being from Birmingham. Yeah, but you don't have like a West Midlands accent. So was that? No. What's going on there? I'm ashamed of that. I do when I've had a drink. <laughs> again, when I'm angry. My wife says, "Who's Norwegian?" But she can recognise enough Brummies to so say occasionally if I've had, a, you know, if I'm angry or if I've had a drink. So, well, that's making me sound like I'm abusive or something. I'm not. Like... <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how do you sound when you've had a drink then? Oh, well, a bit like that. You know what I mean, Mac? Yeah. <laughs> so did you use it? Put like it in there. Put it in there. Go on. <laughs> All right, Bab. All right, Bab. Go on. Give me another pint of mild there. That's it. Fantastic. No, um, no, there was, there was a few words. Yeah, I'm a bit ashamed of that, really. I don't know why I think that it happened. My, I didn't have like a massively strong Brummie accent anyway. Um, my dad's from Middlesbrough. I remember he used to have a bit more of a sort of weird, like, Brummy. North, northerny sort of twang but i and then i went to oxford and i think i think at oxford i think it just i think it disappeared and i, I not consciously i think that it was so i think people underestimate. i think it's a bit different now but particularly then it's so southern oxford so southern like crazily so and and this is the only time in my life and you won't believe this but i remember going there and i had a great time at oxford but it is a very weird place and like um i had uh it's it's blair's fault really i mean it's labor's fault because i i did this I did this summer school when I was at school and I did, did you spent a week in Oxford. Right. And um, it was for kids. It's called aim higher. And it was for state school kids who had never, you know, their schools had very little history of sending uh, kids to university, let alone higher, you know, the top university. And I went for a week and it was obviously full of other kids like me. So it was a total illusion. Right. It was a complete fan. I thought this is great. It's amazing. Uh, and so I applied and went. I'm sure I wouldn't have done so if it weren't for that. But uh, but then obviously when I got there, it was completely different because actually the reality was right. There basically there were more kids from Eton in my you know year than there were, uh, you know certainly from almost any, well certainly probably from state schools in Birmingham probably if you exclude the grammar schools to be honest. And um, I remember one one lovely girl and she was so posh. I mean honestly, I mean she was so posh. She was so posh. You know they barely move their mouths. You know is that that, that kind of taught somehow that it's wrong to sort of move your mouth in any kind of way and she said she said oh lewis we love having you here you know you're the college's bit of rough <laughs> it's oh, the God. only time in my life i've ever been called a bit of rough uh <laughs> were you intimidated it, by that no i wasn't intimidated by it. i wasn't intimidated by it at all i think i probably did what i naturally do in those circumstances which is i sort of like overcompensate by being more confident and more kind of i wasn't intimidated but it was certainly the first time in my life that i realized that i actually kind of saw class up close i don't i don't you know i had never even met anyone from private school i don't think up to that point i don't i don't think i'd ever ever met anyone and i, I it was uh it was the first time that i i think you know again again it's blair's fault because i genuinely think i i when i was at school and you remember this you know it's not being at school at the time but you know around that time i genuinely think that i had bought the idea that the kind of new labor was almost like the end of history it was like class and things like that is something that used to, even though it used to happen, even though it's kind of ridiculous because I was in this school that in many ways was not, it did its best, but it wasn't a great school in some ways. And, you know, class was all around, you know, you could see it. But I genuinely thought that all that had gone because Blair was there. 
because <laughs> new labor was there you know that was all in the past and i was lucky to be born when i was and in a way i think looking back i really was very lucky but for different reasons and um and then i went to oxford and i was like oh christ right okay there are all these people and they've got like loads of money and they're not just loads of money but they're so urbane and kind of sophisticated and kind of um and sort of cool in a way you know all this sort of thing and uh it was the first time in my life i genuinely think i thought it was a naive thing because i think being quite clever and working class in the sort of new labor period you were quite lucky because there's quite a lot thrown at you and i you know and i think that and it was hugely to my benefit and it was the first time in my life i realized and it did shape me slightly i was like oh right life isn't going to be one big linear kind of ascent it's going to like have ups and downs and it's going to be like, and there's going to be obstacles and there are going to be other people there who are going to be in your way. Do you know what I mean? And like uh, my, my, my mom, God bless her. Who's not always the wisest lady, but she was very wise on this. I remember her saying just before, you know, Lewis, you're going to meet very different sort of people and it's going to be difficult for you. I said, oh, what do you mean? So it's going to be difficult because you're always used to being this sort of big fish in your you know little world and, and you're not going to be anymore. I said, oh, shut up. Of course I am. Um, <laughs> and of course you're quite a not. brat kid then it sounds it sounds like you're actually well, a, a terrible I, boy rude to your mother no I wasn't a brat it's just because my mum was so young you know she was like because she was only 17 when she had me right so so um, so I just that was the sort of relationship that we had and have but yeah but I would always yeah probably assume she was wrong probably still do but, but what a strong character you've got to to respond to that environment with, with confidence rather than than be intimidated by it where does that come from? No, I don't know, really. I don't know. I, I don't know. But it probably wasn't strength in a way, was it? It's probably weakness in a way. It was probably actual nervousness. It was probably like actually. And I did have a bit of a kind of um, I did have a bit of a crisis, at Oxford, in a sense, but it was a very inward one. It wasn't like no one would have known on the outside. But it was it was that sense of just a bit like, oh, Christ, you know, this is. This is hard. I think I also kind of thought, to be honest, again, it's that naivety, right? I think I when I got into Oxford, I. Um, uh, and I was so happy. Like I basically were, I'd, I'd sort of thrown everything at, at it. I basically thought if I do this, then that's it. I'm going to be set. That's it. I don't basically don't have to work anymore. That's it. I'm going to be in the inner sanctum, right? I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to have entered the sort of the, the, the inner, the inner, the British inner sanctum, right? Uh, and that's it. And then I got there and I was like, oh God, it's not like that at all. So I think all of my assumptions about the world and my own kind of progress within them sort of wobble. But yeah, it, I, I don't know where it comes from really. I think I just, but the one, the, the main reason I'm actually glad that I went to Oxford now, when I look back, it's not because it opened up things necessarily. It's more because um, I'm really glad in, it, what it, it gave me actually was a kind of a pretty uh, a sort of intellectual self-confidence. I think if I hadn't got in, I worry I would have been, I mean, some people say I've got a chip on my shoulder now, but but I think people, I think it would have been, I would always have had this sense that that I didn't get in and that would have been and I would have met people later on and it would have been there sort of in my sort of my uh, just in my on my shoulder just constantly whispering in my ear but I think that the um the sort of intel it gives you a sort of just sense of like when you're meeting some of these pricks who actually know nothing and are actually not very you know not particularly intelligent at all but it's just been sort of handed to them it just gives you a sort of sense of no nah, no nah, I can I can deal with this yeah, I can deal with this. It's absolutely, absolutely fine. I think that that's basically the whatever whatever you actually learn there. To me, I actually think it just allowed me to sort of be calm on that on that score and have a kind of self belief. Your mum must be so proud of you. My mum, yeah, yeah, she is very proud. Yeah, she is. I think, yeah, she is. She definitely is. Yeah, yeah, she is. 
she's i'm very proud of her i mean she's got a she's always had her ups and downs god love her but she's um <laughs> she's a strong lady yeah she's a strong lady i do and I, when i look back now i i kind of uh and what's scary now is that when my mom when i think that when my mom was my age now i was 17 i was about to go to oxford man which is absolutely nuts there's a very real chance she could outlive me <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, mean, I could die when i'm 80 and she could be 97 I mean, yeah. absolutely totally incredible and when i was born she um it's all nuts stuff. We were in the Birmingham Mail when I was born, right? Because we were five generations. So I knew my nan's nan very quite well. My nana Jill, which that is, is incredible. And I think I tell people that and they think that I was like some I was born in like basically Peaky Blinders or something. Like I was <laughs> I was born in like <laughs> you know, Stanley Baldwin was prime minister or whatever. Um but uh But also yeah, how fitting she... how fitting that even your birth was in the news from literally the moment you popped out news was fused with who lewis goodall is i don't know how that got in yeah that's weird i never thought about that yeah that's funny but yeah she um i do think yeah i think also i think when she talks about being a teenage mum in the late 80s and early 90s actually what that was like she, she actually like um i think much more so than it would be now she, i mean you know she's always tells this story when um so when she used to go into the um like going for her sort of checkups, like when she was pregnant, she said that they always make a made a point of saying, "Oh, would um, you know, would Sandra come into the waiting room, or would uh, would Claire come into the waiting room?" She said, always made a point of going, "Would Miss Page please come in?" Bastards! Uh, it's all, I mean, I know bastards. Although she was, as she would say herself, now I think she did. Uh, I think she did go down the social and give a few uh, untruths about the current home situation, but my dad not being there but it doesn't matter it's you've got to do now. what you got to do had she not done that <laughs> god knows what would have happened to you lewis had, had she not well, exactly. done everything in her power to give you the very best upbringing possible we would have exactly. been deprived the news agents would just be john and emily oh god imagine oh, that who would imagine that imagine that god what would that be like oh they'd just be muttering at each other the whole time no lewis. one would there to <laughs> this has been such a treat it's oh, well, always no, a pleasure talking to you, on. and it has flown by. Oh. Um, enjoy the rest of your week in Liverpool. And I would love to interview you at a, a live show one day. I would love that. I would love that. Absolutely. Bring, bring my mum along. Bring, bring Carmen along. That would be absolutely phenomenal. Cheers, mate. <laughs> my pleasure. Speak soon. Well, there you go. Lewis Goodall, who's... Uh, hotel Wi-Fi just about held out in order for us to to record that. And as always, you're like, man, I, I need I, I need hours with him. Do you know what I mean? I almost want to just meet up with him for a few pints and just record the whole thing. He's just a great person to talk to, and um, has that great mix of the fire in the belly and the clarity of thought and the talent of uh, of, of broadcasting and thinking. Uh, and you can see why he's such a big part of the news agents and its success. Um, because he's so good at breaking things down and communicating them. And, and there's also just a genuine love of it. And I think that really comes across. And obviously, that's something I really identify with. Um, so um, hopefully you are enjoying conference season. Um, this feed is now uh, back up and running after a temporary blip. But as I said at the start, I, I, there won't be any live shows 
um, for a, a few weeks and then as soon as I can they'll be put back in and we'll be back at the Duchess Theatre and uh, and all the rest of it but I'm going to record a few of these um, before I go into hospital and then um, that will keep you ticking over and, and um, obviously you're at liberty to peruse the back catalogue um, but certainly my intention is to curate um, a, a little series of, of some of the best ones but um, I shall shut up now. Uh, the usual stuff. Oh, I've put a link to Lewis's book so you can buy it. Um, but the usual stuff. Uh, please leave a five-star written review. Um, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.